The Insider's Guide to Energy Hydrogen mini-series is brought to you by the Hydrogen Dialogue Summit and Expo, taking place December 6th and 7th at Nuremberg Exhibition Center. This edition of the Insider's Guide to Energy Hydrogen mini-series is brought to you by FORS, a leading international strategy and management consultancy with focus on the entire trading value chain. This episode of the Hydrogen series is brought to you by Distributech International. Distributech International is taking place in Orlando, Florida on February 26th through 29th. Insider's Guide to Energy is a proud media partner of Distributech International. On today's show, what we're going to talk about is the data that shows how we're doing on the hydrogen um, transformation to green hydrogen. And um, I think it makes sense for you to start out by sharing with us what you're seeing in the data today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, there's a lot of hope and promise for uh, a scaled-up clean hydrogen sector. Um, there is about 100 million metric tons of fossil hydrogen demand already today that needs to be decarbonized. And according to our own analysis, if the world wants to be compliant with a net zero pathway, uh, clean hydrogen demand needs to reach about 500 million metric tons by 2050. So we need to use clean hydrogen in a lot of new sectors where it's not used today. That's from steel, that's from heavy transport. All of those sectors need need to use some level of clean hydrogen and have few alternatives to decarbonizing otherwise. Where we are today compared to that sort of target is there's lots of projects announced. Uh, we are tracking over 170 million metric tons of clean hydrogen supply that could come online if all projects announced were built. So that's more than existing demand already. But less than 10% of projects of that uh, by count have taken a final investment decision and probably just a couple percentage points have actually of the supply, of the total announced supply, have taken final investment decision. So only a small share of the total pipeline is close to a financing or a decision or is under construction today. And why that is not happening is because the economics in most cases for these uh, hydrogen projects don't work out without further incentives and subsidies for uptake of clean hydrogen. Um, that's sort of the story on hydrogen overall. Um, despite that, we see a lot of positive developments as well. Uh, if you look at the sales of the core equipment, uh, electrolyzers, which are needed to produce uh, hydrogen from by splitting water into hydrogen and oxygen using renewable electricity, those sales have been doubling every year since 2020. So we are now in a, we, we think at BNF, sales of electrolyzers will reach about two, two gigawatts for the first time this year, and maybe three to three to five gigawatts next year. So again, a doubling next year. And that's not stopping any anytime soon, despite incentives not being there yet. So it's an exponential, exponential growth market at the same time, right? So I, I guess a couple things come to mind from your initial statement here. Um, the electrolyzers that are being built. So is, is mostly that taking place in China? And that's also to meet just the current demand curve, right? The, 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 the rate you're talking about. That isn't new in, entrants coming in or industries in large scale coming in and using hydrogen, right? We're not seeing it in new uses for most of that, are we? So in terms of the manufacturing, what we're seeing is that most announced manufacturing, about 70% of it, is located in China just because Chinese companies are expanding manufacturing capacity rap quite rapidly. At the same time, Chinese companies are not selling overseas yet. So uh, unlike in solar and batteries, for example, local domestic demand in Europe and the U.S. is currently mostly met through uh, European and American electrolyzer manufacturers as well. Um, so we have to see how that changes. In terms of sales, until I think this year, uh, we, were, we were seeing a very dominant uh, sales pipeline in China, where most projects 
the largest projects were just being built in China, but that is slowly changing as well. Europe and the US are building larger and larger projects, so demand for electrolyzers is, is rising in these markets as well. Um, so it's balancing out somewhat. And then, you know, I, I guess one of the things I'd read recently is that the current electrolyzers being built are alkaline-based. Is that something that is relevant to this conversation in that number, or is there a technology shift that we're hoping to see to meet this demand going forward? Yeah, it really depends on how you look at it. If you look at the global numbers, over 70% of the electrolyzers being made and sold are alkaline, but that's heavily skewed by China. Uh, Chinese electrolyzers are 90, 95% of them are alkaline, and China has had the largest deployment of electrolyzers so far, which is why that number is skewed. If you just look at the US or Europe separately, it's really 50-50 between alkaline and proton exchange membrane electrolyzers, um, which uh, are the other technology which has more R&D behind it in Europe in particular. Um, and the supply chain isn't uh, as clearly concentrated in China as it is for alkaline electrolyzers, for example. And then you know, we, we jumped right into the, the use and the doubling of, of production. Um, I guess one of the things that's important if you're producing, you need demand side. So you, you gave some fairly large statistics or numbers of what we need to hit, uh, but the market's not going to take it until it gets to a certain price. So what is the number that we're trying to hit for the cost of green hydrogen or low emission hydrogen? Yeah, green hydrogen today at the production side in most cases is cost somewhere between, let's say, 6 and $12 per kilogram. It can be cheaper than that, but in most cases, it's somewhere between that. And it can be more expensive to that when you incorporate transfer and storage costs. Today, the fossil alternative, gray hydrogen made from natural gas, costs anywhere between $1 and $3 per kilogram to make. And that's really where you need to go with green hydrogen costs if you want to compete with fossil fuels directly. Um, I think the way to look at this, though, is that the cost of fossil hydrogen and fossil fuels will also increase over time due to carbon taxes, uh, in, uh, incentives to, to use and uptake low carbon hydrogen. So maybe you don't need to be as cheap, but that's roughly the range where you need to get green hydrogen to for large-scale uptake uh, without incentives. Now, are there kind of economies of scale that the production cost or the cost of the equipment should be dropping as well? Is that part of your modeling so that, you know, when we get to 2030, um, have you already taken that into account or or, or are we kind of not putting that there until that actually takes place? Yeah, we have a view that electrolyzer costs could come down quite tremendously, about 60-70% by the early 2030s or so. Um, if everything stays as is and if there's no major shift in the commodity price environment. So commodity prices, as we've seen, have increased cost across the board for clean tech, and that's affected electrolyzers as well. And so that could delay the transition. But we do think with large-scale deployment, there's a lot of potential cost reductions on electrolyzers, simply because that's machinery that is not being yet um, manufactured and deployed at gigawatt scale, at large scale. And it's uh, machinery that is mostly still made manually, not at o- in automated factories and so on. So through automation, through large-scale manufacturing, and just deploying la- larger projects, we think electrolyzers can be about 60 70% cheaper than what they are today. And that's a huge cost-down potential on the cost of green hydrogen. Now, you talk about larger projects. You, you mentioned in your opening statement uh, some large number of projects. They, they hadn't gotten through all their final financial approval and hadn't moved all the way through. Um, how is the state of the industry? I mean, we hear about these energy hubs or these hydrogen hubs being announced and, and you know, they're getting government support in you know, the EU or North America. Um, what's the state of the industry right now? I mean, what we're mostly seeing so far is until now, 
really just pilot projects have made it through uh, investment decision and to operations. And the largest operating electrolyzers today are in the Western world are maybe 40 megawatts in size. That's it. Um, the largest operating electrolyzer in China is about 260 megawatts uh, in size. And that's the largest operating plant that you have for green hydrogen today. Um, that's really how far we are off from the hundreds of gigawatts uh, we need to deploy to hit these decarbonization targets. At the same time, we have now seen the first investment decision on a gigawatt-scale plant, the NEOM plant in Saudi Arabia, which will deploy about 2.2 gigawatts of electrolyzers by 2026. So we have investment decisions on the first gigawatt-scale plant, but that's just one. We need more of those to be able to hit our targets. And do you think that we're tracking to hit the target? I mean, is it physically going to be possible with the supply chain and, and all the steps that need to take place for a project to go from inception to approval to being built? I mean, 2030 is just around the corner. Yeah, it really depends on what targets we talk about. I mean, um, in terms of uh, the scaling of hydrogen, clean hydrogen needs to scale a lot faster than solar and wind ever have. So that the sort of the pressure to scale is is, is a lot larger, um, and so it's really hard to hit those decarbonization targets and so on, uh, especially if you set them really high, like the EU has, for example. So in a lot of cases, uh, we are already missing targets, interim targets that we set. The EU wanted to deploy six gigawatts of electrolyzers by 2024. We are nowhere near that. Maybe at a gigawatt or so. Um, so we're missing targets, and we probably are also missing targets in the near term. That doesn't mean like uh, we can scale electrolyzers relatively quickly. We're already seeing exponential growth, and if that extends uh, long-term, we could be in line with what what is a net-zero pathway. I mean, if you just look at the announced pipeline of projects, there's enough projects in the pipeline, we think, until the early 2030s to have enough supply to be net-zero compliant, right? It's just about getting these projects built and financed. Uh, that involves long timelines, that a lot, lot involves a lot of capital to be allocated towards the project and for the economics to work out, and that's what governments and uh, have to have a role to play. And when you talk about government's role, um, at least on the supply side, there seems to be a, a lot of incentive being put there. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about some of the incentives that you see on the supply side that are being in place. So let's say in the U.S. or other places, what what's happening, let's say, with the IRA? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we at BNF try to track um, available subsidies going, going towards the hydrogen sector between now and over the next decade or so. And what we found is that there's about $308 billion in capital committed by governments to scaling up the hydrogen sector, uh, mostly through the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act and the projects that that could fund, but also in Europe and a, a tiny bit in Asia as well. But if you kind of try to split up that funding by how much of that money goes towards supplying and producing hydrogen versus how much of that money goes towards buyers like steel plants, ammonia plants, and so on to actually buy clean hydrogen, sign those long-term offtake agreements that we think are needed, then we think 95% of the money goes towards producers and 5% of, of the money is targeted incentives for buyers to sign long-term offtake agreements. And we see that take effect as well into in the deals that we see happening. Um, we recently started tracking offtake deals for clean hydrogen globally. And what we found is out of the capacity until 2030 that has been announced, just about 1% has a binding offtake agreement to actually sell it to someone, right? Just 1% has some a backer behind it who's willing to take the hydrogen. And we think that's partly because there's not enough, enough incentives for buyers to create the demand for clean hydrogen. If, if you're getting clean hydrogen today, what are you paying for clean hydrogen today? Is that, I mean, it would seem that this is straight economics, right? is supply and demand. So, you know, are, are you paying more than $3? $3? Mm, or what are you paying? 
I mean, the question, answer to that is always it depends. It depends on what kind of hydrogen you're using, where you, how you're producing it, and so on. Um, we think blue hydrogen, so natural gas-based hydrogen, carbon capture and storage, can cost you anywhere between two and five dollars per kilogram in that range. So there's already a premium for blue over fossil hydrogen. And uh, green hydrogen, as I mentioned, can cost all the way upwards of $12 or more, depending on what the project setup is, where you, whether you're sourcing from on-site renewables or whether you're sourcing from the grid. Um, and there's questions about how clean that hydrogen is if you're sourcing from the grid. Um, so there is a huge cost gap. In the UK, for example, we had a recent uh, tender being awarded to 12, uh, 11 green hydrogen projects. Um, those are uh, coming at an average uh, hydrogen cost for green hydrogen projects of $12 per kilogram. That's insanely large. That's six times larger than what gray hydrogen costs in, in the UK today. So, yeah, to me, to me, it seems that that's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem, right? I mean, if you're asking me to sign a long-term power purchase agreement or to commit long-term and you're way above market, that's a bit of a challenge. So you, you're probably safer waiting until the prices become more predictable or lower, or there's a subsidy to guarantee lower pricing. Is that... I mean that's definitely that's definitely a game that um, buyers of clean hydrogen are trying to play uh, in terms of just waiting it out until green hydrogen costs are coming down. Um, there is an advantage to being a first mover, at least in the in securing low volumes, to be able to use clean hydrogen in processes where clean hydrogen has not been used before or hydrogen has not been used before, and learning how to handle and si sign these agreements as well. So being early on can be adv advantageous as well by uh, what a lot of buyers are doing is like they're increasingly taking equity stakes in existing production projects uh, that are looking to produce clean hydrogen with the aim of learning from that and then through phase one getting access to phase two the, which is much larger as well so securing sort of supplies early on for future expansion but by supporting these backing these projects early on there is a way of doing that at the same time a regulation particularly in the European Union, is driving uptake among buyers more and more. So um, there is a bunch of regulation which is mandating uh, existing uses of hydrogen in industry in, in, the, in Europe. Called, uh, the regulation is called the Renewable Energy Directive. Um, and transport fuel producers, which are mostly refineries, to um, replace a share of their existing fuel with green hydrogen by 2030. And those mandates quite, can be quite large. For example, uh, fertilizer producers in the EU would need to replace 42% of the hydrogen that they're using today uh, from fossil fuels with green hydrogen by 2030 uh, and need to source that from somewhere. So all of that is, is creating regulatory-driven demand to pay a higher price for more expensive clean hydrogen as well. But so far, your examples still revolve around or are about based on current users of hydrogen and ammonia today, right? So we're not seeing a significant uptick in new uses or new users of hydrogen or green hydrogen yet? Is that a safe assessment? I, mean, mm, I wouldn't say so. I mean, definitely, like current uses of hydrogen are hardest hit by regulation in a lot of places. Like, for example, ammonia producers for fertilizers. But at the same time, we see carbon pricing and so on uh, also affect uh, new potential new users of hydrogen, like steelmakers, enough that they're thinking about switching to hydrogen at some point. For example, a lot of steel companies, what they're doing is they're getting subsidies to install the equipment that you need to use clean hydrogen down the line to produce uh, primary steel. But they're starting with natural gas and then with the, with the option to switch to green, green hydrogen or low carbon hydrogen over time. So that's how we're already happening. At the same time, there is regulation now that um, for uh, aviation, so for the uh, aviation sector in the EU, 
but also for the shipping sector in the EU to increasingly blend synthetic fuels uh, over time. And that those are also new, would be new uses of hydrogen uh, if, if the hydrogen is converted into synthetic fuels, for example. So there are new use cases emerging where there is clear demand. I think what also need, needs to be said and needs to be kept in mind is that the existing demand for hydrogen is mostly in two places, which is ammonia production for fertilizers, and second is uh, refineries for uh, hydrocracking and hydrotreating oil. In a net zero world, both of these uh, demands probably would go down over time. Um, so we can't use as much synthetic fertilizer by capita if we want to be net zero compliant. Same, same as like we can't refine as much oil if we want to be net zero compliant. So these these could be declining sectors over time where new uses are really what's driving hydrogen demand growth. And we think, for example, steel would be the one sector that drives most of that growth going into the future. And then I, I guess... Where are we on kind of the bottlenecks of scaling this up? So we, we've talked about the economics, which certainly, you know, supply and demand are pretty fundamental. But even if we want to turn these projects on, how is the supply chain working and, and can we do it? I mean, I think you alluded to it earlier on that you said we could hit some basic demands for 2030 for what's in the pipeline, but those projects are still not solid yet. Or they're still kind of early stage. Yeah, I mean, economics is definitely the biggest one. I think once the economics work out, you'll see a lot of capital allocation happening towards the sector. But once that's done, there's definitely still like technical limitations around particularly green hydrogen projects and electrolyzers that we need to figure out. No one has built a one gigawatt scale electrolyzer plant just yet. So we don't know what these plants will look like in terms of uh, and, uh, uh, in terms of the size and how they will operate, uh, how reliable they will be. There's a lot of risks and uncertainties involved in building such large plants that we don't know how to handle yet. And there will be a lot of failures along the way. We're also seeing that despite electrolyzers being somewhat called a mature technology, we're seeing a lot of failures once they're being connected uh, to existing plants today. Um, electrolyzers are not performing according to the spec sheet in a lot of cases, whether that's in China or in Europe. We've seen a lot of recalls over the last year. So the reliability of the technology is also in question today. And that still needs to be sort of ironed out as we build these projects. The next one is timelines. I think people underestimate how long it takes to build a large-scale low carbon hydrogen plant we think it can take at least if it's a gigawatt scale plant it can take at least five years from like conceptual design to getting that plant operational if not longer right and just because of those long timelines involved getting a lot of these projects built let's say by 2030 will be challenging um that's not to say we won't build some of them because there are gigawatt scale projects in the pipeline that are already past feasibility and have already passed advanced engineering studies um it's more about financing these projects, but a lot, a large scale, a large part of them are still not there yet to be ready for financing. Now, are you seeing an attrition of potential suppliers? Um, I mean, I've read some things like Plug Power was having some financial troubles this year. Um, has the economy and, and all the things conspired to make it hard for some of the future hopeful players for long term hydrogen? What we've definitely seen with the general macro environment over the last year, and then also the, some of the failures are across manufacturers, is that project developers are tightening their pipeline to only focus on projects that really will make sense. We've seen Orsted, for example, uh, because partly because of the losses they made in the US with the offshore wind uh, industry, also reduce, cut some of the projects in Europe on hydrogen, um, right? Um, and they only focus on some projects that they think are viable. Um, some other companies we think will do the same. So that will definitely reduce the number of projects or has the potential to reduce the number of projects out there. 
Um, but maybe that was going to happen anyway. I mean, we see a lot of project announcements with very little path to commercial viability, right? Without a big subsidy coming in and someone promising them to offtake that money at a big premium, right? So realistic supply is probably only a fraction of the 100, 170 millimetric tons of potential supply that I mentioned to you. Um, but that's okay. We don't need that much hydrogen by, let's say, 2030 to be compliant with net zero or, or so on. We need to build out the pipeline. We need to build million, millions of metric tons of hydrogen supply. But that doesn't have to come within the next two years or three years. It has to come over time. Awesome. And then if, if we get to that point, what's your vision for the market? How, how does this become you know, not a subsidy type thing, but actually become a market? So how does that kind of develop? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the market today is also a bit of a reflection of how this will develop. I think a lot of people believe in a traded market for clean hydrogen, and there's big question marks around how that will actually look like. We think uh, the first projects definitely are locating themselves close to industrial demand, so where you have industrial hubs and where you can produce without tra having to transport the molecule too far. Hydrogen as a molecule is super hard to transport because it's bulky and it's really, really leak prone, so you have to do, in most cases, you have to do something to it. The easiest and cheapest way to transport hydrogen, we, and we see that developing in Europe in particular, is hydrogen, pure hydrogen pipelines that could we think feasibly transport large volumes of the molecule in bulk and pure hydrogen over long distances. So much like a natural gas, there could be some hydrogen transport via pipeline in, in a market. But once you pass pipelines, it's pretty much, un, in most cases, uneconomic to transport pure hydrogen and use it as hydrogen uh, via a ship. So once you're thinking about seaborne transport, we think you need to convert it to something else that is already being transported, like ammonia. Um, or methanol or some sort of synthetic fuel, some hydrocarbon that we already know how to transport and then use it as that as well rather than converting it back to hydrogen. Because once you start converting it back to hydrogen, the efficiency losses across the supply chain are so large uh, that the economics just don't stack up. So we think a traded market for hydrogen might not involve a lot of pure hydrogen at all. It will be pipe, piped pure hydrogen and it will be molecules and, and products derived from hydrogen that are traded within itself, whether that's ammonia, methanol, steel, hydrocarbons, synthetic fuels, and so on. So, so what I'm hearing you say is there's existing markets for those because they're already there. So that will continue to play out, and there will be a smaller pure hydrogen market because that would be mostly what comes through the pipelines. Is that kind of what you're saying? Exactly, and you can pipe large volumes of hydrogen as well. Like if you look at Europe, for example, there's lots of potential to build a lot of green hydrogen capacity where renewables are cheap, let's say in Spain, in Iberia, in the Nordics, uh, or whether that's in North Africa as well, and then pipe it over overseas, um, pipe it to Central Europe where most of the demand is. That can be large volumes, but it's piped hydrogen. Uh, and that will be all for chemical feedstock uses in most cases. Uh, when you don't have that, you probably, hydrogen plays a huge role by being the building block of other products and molecules uh, rather than it, as hydrogen itself. You know, being located in the United States, there's a lot of talk about IRA, there's tax credits, they're imminently about to announce, are they supposed to announce them by the end of the year? We're days from the end of the year. What does this mean in your world? Yeah, uh, developers across the world, not just in the US, are looking at the guidance from the Treasury for how what kind of hydrogen can be produced to qualify for the highest level of tax credits in the in the US. Because the tax rates are so lucrative that we think a lot of projects will start taking investment decisions once they have access to them, right? Um, and what really matters is um, 
the guidance will determine the emissions profile of the hydrogen that is produced. So there's been a big debate about using green hydrogen, making green hydrogen from grid electricity, because in the US, if you just plug an electrolyzer into the grid, uh, you can't really call that green because the emissions from that hydrogen are larger than producing hydrogen from fossil fuels directly uh, through methane reforming or something like that. So we have been at belief that uh, the tax credit guidance will need stringent standards, and we're hoping to see that. That means you can only produce hydrogen at the same time and in the same location where green electricity is also available on the grid. Uh, when you're connecting to the grid. And that really really will determine whether the U.S. is a credible player in terms of low emissions hydrogen production or whether it's, it's greenwashing a lot of the production that is supposed to come online, right? Um, it'll also make the economics more challenging, for sure. If you propose um, strict guidance on, on hydrogen producers, that means the project designs need to be adapted, uh, especially if things like hourly matching to renewables will come into play over years. But we think that's necessary to scale up a market that's truly low emissions and for the U.S. to hit its goals. Now, we, we have seen some guidance from other parts of the IRA. Is there any indication of what you guys think will happen or is it really being well kept, kept close to the vest until it's released? There has been rumors now that the U.S. guidance will actually be relatively strict, stricter than what Europe has already introduced. Um, so it will include the so-called three pillars of additionality of renewables, hourly matching with renewable energy, and then also geographic correlation with the renewable electricity source, which is great um, because that's what's needed over time. There's also rumors that this will be phased in over 2027, 2028, which is, at, we think, also the right time frame to give developers to adapt to the rules. So we, uh, if, if, if that's what's true and that's what's coming out, uh, that's a really big win for uh, low emissions hydrogen production. Um, there is a lot of industry pushback, so we'll have to see how that develops. Um, but um, that will be actually a really good development. Well, awesome. I, I look forward to seeing that. We hope that comes out by year's end as promised. Uh, we're, we're days away from finding that out, so it'll be interesting. Now, I've recently on this series interviewed a number of ministers from another number of countries hoping to be that new hydrogen exporter in the world. I think I read somewhere there's probably 50 some odd countries that have hydrogen policies or plans. How is that shaping out? What are you tracking? How many of them are really making noise and how many of those plans are like have numbers that you can actually track or do something with at this point or are they more just on paper? Yeah, I mean, we're tracking uh, over 50 governments that have released some sort of hydrogen strategy. The, how much money is behind them really varies. Um, not every strategy has concrete targets either, so it really, really varies by market. And a lot of markets are increasingly looking to uh, making hydrogen as an export opportunity because they see a lot of value in, for example, diversifying from the existing revenue streams, a lot of oil and gas markets, for example, which have realized that they have great renewable resource potential in North Africa and the Middle East, but also in Latin America, uh, are all looking to export hydrogen in large volumes. Um, a lot of times, um, those claims, at least in the near term, I would say a bit overhyped, because if you look at import demand in the near term, um, a lot of that still needs to scale. Like we need the new uses cases to come in, like steel, ammonia, and so on. Um, ammonia to be used in not just in fertilizers, but also in shipping and other industries for demand to be large enough to justify imports from other places. At the same time, it completely makes sense to look at these markets and say, okay, it's way cheaper to produce green hydrogen in the Middle East or in Latin America and then ship it maybe as ammonia or some other molecule to Europe 
where uh, Europe has really high production costs, but also maybe not the space available to produce all that green hydrogen themselves, uh, to come get into these trade relationships early. I think it's just people are underestimating how quickly large scale trade of hydrogen will happen. We'll see first shipments, we'll see a few hundred thousand tons here and there being shipped, at, with, uh, I think, by 2030, but we won't see those. Uh, targets like the EU, the EU wants to import 10 million metric tons by 2030. I don't think that's realistic within the time frame. At some point, they probably need it. They probably won't need it by 2030. Now, you, you mentioned one Middle East project. Um, are there other projects in these countries that you see that are actually started or coming that the foundation's in place that you're tracking? I mean, lots of projects in the Middle East in particular are at a very early stage. Some of them have secured land, for example, in Oman, where that project, the process has been managed quite well. <clears throat> but uh, I mean, all of these projects are still struggling with securing an offtake and a, particularly a bankable offtake with a credit worthy offtaker. And that usually means selling to Europe, Japan or Korea where there's demand for imports. That will emerge over the next year or so as Europe steps up funding for imports. But also Japan is thinking about uh, contracts with different scheme for uh, imports of hydrogen or ammonia or hydrogen based molecules and putting a lot of money behind that. And Korea is doing the same. So once that happens, we'll see a lot more of these projects go ahead. I think. Um, but at the same time, what needs to be said, a lot of the Middle Eastern projects are very large uh, and still very early stage. So outside of Neom, there's very few that are in construction. I can think of one more in Oman, but most of the other ones are still at an early feasibility stage. Do you see a transition in energy security based on the supply chain for electrolyzers? So, you know, if China's producing a great number of them right now, I know that on the podcast, we've had a number of German companies and regions really hoping to do quite a bit. I imagine the U.S. wants to do quite a bit of production. Um, is that something that's taking place, too? Is there an energy security concern about the supply chain of the equipment for this green hydrogen? I mean, for sure, uh, that supply, uh, that concern is rising. But if you just look at the numbers, most of the manufacturing capacity is already located in China. But compared to what's happening in solar and batteries, uh, China is still not supplying the rest of the world when it comes to electrolyzers. Um, so what companies in Europe and also in the U.S. are sort of looking to do is like have enough domestic incentives that uh, encourage local content, right, and local projects. We haven't really seen that happen yet. Um, uh, but I think that's where industry is, is trying to go. To what extent that will happen and to what extent that will affect the transition is still to be seen. Uh, we think there's definitely potential for Chinese exports of uh, electrolyzers overseas, at least the core equipment over time. Today, Chinese equipment does not meet the performance and technical standards of Western-made equipment yet. So that still needs to be ironed out over the next few years. But once that happens, uh, Chinese equipment will be competitive and potentially significantly cheaper. At the same time, Western makers will try to also reduce their costs through automation and so on as well. So it's really a race to see who will dominate this market. And it's not as set as it's been, as it's been in solar or batteries yet. Uh, there's a real threat of Chinese uh, electrolyzer makers really flooding the market with cheaper equipment. Now, is there, like in hydrocarbons or like in the US, we have oil reserves or federal government for security reasons. Is hydrogen getting to that point where it's valuable enough in the supply chain for, for a country that they will actually help? Because it would probably skew or jumpstart a market, right? If you had some something like that, is that happening? Not yet, because just because there is no market for hydrogen today. Uh, I would definitely hope that like as the market for traded hydrogen in the form of ammonia and so on picks up, that countries are looking to diversify their suppliers beyond just one. And that will make sense because renewable energy is cheap and available in a lot of different places, whether that's in Latin America or the Middle East or Africa or so on, right? 
there's lots of potential to diversify your suppliers and not put all your eggs in one basket. Uh, and I think if one thing we learned from sort of the Russia, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is that like it's it's really challenging from just from an energy perspective to to be so heavily reliant on one supplier. Um, and hopefully that means that like we don't repeat the same thing for hydrogen. Uh, that needs to be seen. Um, I mean, obviously hydrogen will not play as big of a role in our economy as natural gas does today. Um, hydrogen will be used selectively as a chemical feedstock in some locations, sometimes as the fuel, but the um, overall amount of energy we're using in the form of hydrogen will, will be much smaller than what natural gas is doing today. Understood. Now, kind of back as we come towards the end of this interview, um, let's go back. We started the premise that the data doesn't lie. The data tells us where we are. So you spent a lot of time in the data. That's what you do. Um, looking at 2023, you know what what have we seen? And then you sound fairly optimistic in your tone. And you're you're fairly realistic. You say some things will come to fruition, some won't. What is the data telling you? How are we doing? What's your scorecard? Yeah, I mean, 2023 was a year where we, for the first time ever, saw sales of electrolyzers reach over a gigawatt for the first time. We think up, up to two gigawatts, so that's very optimistic. Um, uh, we're finally in a market that is not just selling a few hundred megawatts of this uh, of these systems. At the same time, lots of projects are still waiting for funding decisions, uh, or if they have a funding decision, for that subsidy to be actually allocated towards them so they can take an investment decision. We saw more FIDs go, uh, happening, particularly in NEOM in Saudi Arabia, in Europe, a bunch of them, some in the US as well, that are going ahead. So we see more and more projects being built. So there is definitely like a positive moment, momentum and more and more markets are allocating more funding and more resources towards hydrogen. At the same time, the market is definitely lagging behind its expectations. Um, I, mean, I think that needs to be said. I mean, most projects that get announced don't meet their official commissioning year or FID year. Most projects get delayed by a few years because the economics don't work out. And I end up sort of, we make a forecast of, for example, electrolyzer sales. And I, uh, until now, I've been cutting it every year that I look at it. Just because, like, what we expected to happen that year didn't happen, and that's reflected in the FIDs that we're seeing. Um, I think 2024, uh, as we transition, will be a bigger year, just because you suddenly have U.S. tax credits uh, and and European funding for hydrogen and uh, lots of other programs that are coming, and hopefully that means you'll see a lot more investments taking place as well. And, and how much will the price of gas over the next 12 months impact this? I mean. The economics of hydrogen uh, really need to work out long term. So what happens to natural gas over the next 12 months probably is not enough to make an investment decision. What we pointed out when last year when the price of gas shot up so much is that like, look, like at high natural gas prices, even green hydrogen starts making sense. Um, and uh, increasingly, we heard industrial players thinking about at least a small share of clean hydrogen and blending that as a, as a hedge against very high natural gas price environment. So in that way, it help, helps companies to start thinking about this. But what you really need is uh, long-term natural gas prices to be competitive uh, enough so that green hydrogen is competitive with natural gas. But at the same time, carbon pricing incentives on the demand side need to um, also make the fossil fuel more expensive for this to work out. So it's a bit of a um, supply side cost reduction, but also the, the alternative needs to become more expensive. And carbon credits or price of carbon, what number do you think that price needs to get to before it starts making an impact. Oh, wow. Yeah, we looked at this uh, a couple of years ago. And what we found is that carbon pricing alone is not a silver bullet for hydrogen just because of the, how high carbon prices need to be to incentivize 
clean hydrogen. What we found is that if, even if you get to like $2 per kilogram green hydrogen costs, right? The carbon price that you would need to compete with the cheapest fossil fuels uh, in ammonia production, steel, fertilizer, uh, steel, and so on, is like uh, a couple hundred dollars or larger. Steel is probably you probably an, good enough with like a hundred dollars per ton, uh, but ammonia, methanol, a lot of these processes where hydrogen could be used need very large carbon prices, even at a very cheap hydrogen production cost. So it would probably be a mix of carbon pricing plus other penalties to get people to move, which is why I think in Europe, Europe's approach to use quotas to at least a share of uh, introduce a share of hydrogen is probably the right way to do it because carbon pricing alone won't drive uptake. Well, awesome. I, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your insight and the numbers that you pulled together. Uh, I hope that we can get you back in the future and see how we did. So later in 2024, I'd love to come back and to see what the trend is again. Thank you so much for coming on the Insider's Guide to Energy podcast. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Thank you.